Good morning. It's a big thrill for this old California boy to come here and speak in a place like this. It's been a few years since I've been here, so thank you so, so much for having me here today. A few years ago, after speaking to another congregation on the West Coast, I was greeting folks after the service, and this man approached me and was sharing with me how he'd come to align himself with Unitarian Universalism. However, he confesses he struggles with one of our core principles, affirming the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Well, I gotta say, I was a little shocked by that because to me, that was always a no-brainer. I mean, like, duh, dude, of course that's true. Like, world peace is a good idea. <laughs> but the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, I've glossed over that one a little too easily myself. In his view, there were people who had done such horrible things, or maybe people who hadn't done horrible things, but they, they just weren't good, kind people, and that didn't speak to any particular inherent worth or dignity. I tried to draw a distinction for him then and there between the concept of worth and dignity and good and evil, awkward at best to attempt that conversation, but the thing is those two notions do dance very closely together. And all of this isn't so terribly removed from more Christian notions about God's grace as something that's freely given and can't be earned. I wonder if what really hung him up was that word inherent that somehow worth and dignity had to be proved or earned. As much as I'd like to believe this is a core value and principle for me, the fact is I've judged myself very harshly throughout my life based on what I did or did not do. And very often, though I'm loath to admit it, based on how much money I made or more likely didn't make, though I'd like to think I know better and of course, a big part of me does know better, but the fact remains, there have been moments in my life when in my own mind, my very right to exist, to take up space on the planet, depended on it, my ability to make money. Yeah, I'm really down with that inherent worth and dignity thing. And look at how much cultural reinforcement there is for that value system that would say you are what you do. You meet somebody for the first time, what's the second or third question you're going to ask them? So what do you do? With some professions, we even attach a title to our very names. Our name is inextricably linked with what we do, doctor or reverend. A number of years ago, I was devastated to have been laid off from my job at the time as the palliative care chaplain at the Santa Monica UCLA Hospital. I was struggling with a lot at that time, but not the least of which was how to respond to very well-meaning and loving friends and family who seemed to incessantly ask, so what are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do now? <laughs> My therapist at the time suggested responding, I'm engaged in a spiritual practice of letting go. <laughs> now as loopy as that might sound, I find there's a profound truth there. My job, in a way, would become to let go. Are we really no more than what we do? Look at how we construct an obituary, a resume, basically, to describe a person's whole life and their essence, their being, wife, mother, teacher, nurse. Even without the limitations of a few lines in an obituary, how would you describe your own life and your essence? Would it still be a list of some sort? 
what I did, what I loved, what I lost, my challenges, my defeats? Would it depend on the day you were asked? Is our identity even really fixed? Or in the end, does it really come down to you are what you did in life? And where is the inherent worth and dignity in that? As an oncology chaplain, I have watched countless folks watch their very identities and sense of themselves just dissolve right before their eyes when cancer robbed them of the ability to do the thing that they once did. Do they cease to exist in that moment? Has their worth and dignity been lost or suspended for a time? Carla, a young mother, two daughters, was absolutely devoted to those girls. Her whole life, her world revolved around those girls and their activities. When breast cancer robbed her of the ability to go to the soccer games and the birthday parties, she felt a crushing sense of defeat and failure as a mother. Does she cease to be the mom in that moment? Is she no longer a good parent? We looked at how maybe she was still being the mom, teaching perhaps the ultimate lessons any of us will really ever have to learn. How to love, how to face crisis and loss, and how to let go. Luther was this lovely African-American man, older man, a lifelong Pentecostal preacher and pastor facing the end of his days from pancreatic cancer. When the social worker gave me that referral and gave me that little snapshot for Luther, I felt an instant dread and panic, I must say. How is somebody like me gonna make a connection with somebody like him? It took some time. It took a bit of time and effort for Luther's humanity to peek out from behind his certainty and his platitudes. Chaplain Michael, do you want to know what the hardest thing of all is about this really? It's to realize my congregation is going to go on without me, and they're going to be just fine. I always saw them as my flock. I was their shepherd, indispensable, but I'm nobody's minister anymore. I told him he was still being a minister to me, showing me how to face fear and the inevitability of loss with a kind of humility and grace. For some folks, they feel trapped, condemned forever to make up for what they perceive as the absence of inherent worth and dignity. Miguel was this elegant Spanish gentleman in his 60s, lung cancer came from a highly accomplished patrician Spanish family, highly accomplished himself from where I stood anyway, a professor of Middle Eastern studies, he'd written several books, spoke several languages fluently, but none of it was enough. Michael, he said, when I die, there should be only two words on my tombstone, mediocrity and will, he said with some disgust in his voice. Why would you say such a thing, I asked. Because if I've achieved anything at all in my life, as mediocre as it's been, it's only because of sheer will. When I was a little boy, I used to prick myself with a pin all over until I drew blood so I could stay awake longer, stay up later, study harder. Where does that kind of self-loathing come from, that lack of capacity to see one's value just for being oneself? Are we really no more than our deeds? the best of them or the worst of them? Look at Lance Armstrong. What to make of all of that? 
He did, in fact, inspire untold millions with his story, his victories in racing, his victory over cancer. He wrote a book. He created a foundation. I've met dozens of patients over the years very inspired by Lance. you got to live strong. And now all this news of cheating and doping, and he, he lost the very platform he had from which to inspire. So do you suppose that negates and nullifies all the inspiration he did give? It'll be interesting to see, I think, as time goes on, if he has the opportunity to offer a whole other kind of inspiration about just what it means to be a human being in darkness and in light. Years ago, I worked in the liver transplant unit, and there I co-facilitated a weekly support group for folks waiting for new livers. And there I met Hugo, who was this dapper, charming, 50-something Latino gentleman always sporting a snappy hat, featuring a little bling, with these tattoos peeking out from his cuff and collar that hinted at a, shall we say, more rambunctious youth <laughs> in East LA, where he'd grown up. Hugo was waiting for his second liver. His first liver transplant had failed. As he grew sicker, he needed to be hospitalized while he waited, deteriorating by the day. I went to see him one afternoon and he told me with some urgency that he needed to make a confession to a Catholic priest. I told him I'd page Father Tom right away, our staff priest, and he said, no, that won't do. This sin is so terrible. I can only confess it to the parish priest at the church in East LA where I grew up. I sat and I listened to this scared, broken man, desperate to unburden his conscience, and I felt the most tender affection and compassion and affinity, really, for him. I desperately wanted to make this happen. When I left work a few hours later, I turned on the car radio when I heard a news story about some drunk driver in downtown LA who had just wiped out maybe a dozen people. My instant gut response to the news flash was, kill the bastard. Now, I don't know what Hugo had done, but I imagine it was something pretty terrible. But in that sacred moment at the bedside, it didn't matter. There was grace and there was definitely inherent worth and dignity. A couple hours later in the car, I had no such capacity to recognize those qualities within that drunk driver. So it makes me wonder what role forgiveness plays in our ability to affirm inherent worth and dignity. On one hand, it would seem an essential part of the equation but I find forgiveness to be a prickly, complex topic. I'm not entirely sure what it is and looks like in all of its permutations. Margaret has lived for years with a severely abusive husband, and now she is facing the end of her days from breast cancer. Michael, she said, I know God won't forgive me unless I can forgive others, but I just can't forgive my husband, no matter how hard I try. Do you think that leaves me condemned? Doris survived years of sexual assault and molestation at the hands of her own father as a little girl. Deeply rooted in her Christian faith, she says, God demands that I forgive my father. To the degree that I hold any resentment or anger toward him at all, it's as grave a sin as his molestation of me. I hear that and I think, what a debilitating burden. What a barrier to experiencing grace for herself a grace that would be large enough and merciful enough to include her anger. 
I suspect that for many of us, our ability to affirm worth and dignity may not be as inherent as we might think, that it might indeed be tied to ideas about earning and proving. Corinne has survived 10 years with metastatic breast cancer, and yet she confesses to me that she feels guilty for being alive when so many women she has met along the way have long since died. She runs herself ragged doing volunteer work to the detriment of her own well-being, chasing after this elusive worth and dignity. In a similar way, Wilma has devoted much of her life to serving others, the poor and the homeless mostly, and all that's inspired by her Christian faith. But now she has advanced ovarian cancer and she needs help. She needs help from her husband, her family, her church community. But what grieves Wilma? I can't pay anyone back. I can't do anything for anyone. It was impossible for her to imagine that people might be showing up for her just because they love her, not because of anything she's done or can do. Even more inconceivable to Wilma was the idea that maybe just being Wilma is payback enough. A few years ago, I read the most profoundly moving story in the New York Times about a program at the California Men's Colony, a maximum security prison near San Luis Obispo, California. The program attempts to address this overwhelming and ever-increasing problem of dementia among an aging prisoner population. How to care for these men? As a cost-saving strategy, the prison is recruiting younger inmates to be the aides and caregivers for the older inmates. Gold coats, they're called, because of the yellow jackets they wear to stand out among the sea of blue coveralls. The gold coats tend to all the most personal needs of the older inmates. They bathe them, dress them, feed them, make sure other prisoners don't steal their food. They clean up after the inevitable bodily mishaps. Now, both men on either side of this relationship have often committed the most horrific crimes imaginable. If they had a right to inherent worth and dignity, it would seem in a way they have forfeited it long ago. And for the gold coat, there is no hope of bonus points here. There's no possibility of commuted sentence or early parole. Only the possibility of the experience of compassion and redemption if you will, for choosing to engage in this dance of the condemned. This image moves me beyond words. Two condemned souls and one chooses to put on the gold coat for no other reason than, as one of them put it, allowing me to feel human. Can the gold coat be a pathway for us to see beyond our own judgment and condemnation of others and of ourselves? One thing I love about this image is that the blue coveralls don't come off. The conviction isn't erased or forgiven, whatever that means. We just put the gold coat on over it and do the kind thing anyway. Speaking for myself and for many of the folks I've walked beside over the years, I think a fair number of us have done some time in the blue coveralls of the condemned, metaphorically speaking, condemned by our own internal judges, some of us maybe even for a lifetime. Even if those blue coveralls never come off, we always have the opportunity, maybe even the invitation, to put on the gold coat and tend to that which is broken and scared and weak and fragile 
and guilty with kindness. Tend to it within ourselves and within each other. I was raised a Catholic, and so I was taught there's a hierarchy of sin, that some sins are worse than others. Committing murder is worse than telling a lie. Protestants tend to view that a little differently. What I find, though, is that the size of the sin doesn't seem to matter a bit to that internal judge. He won't be convinced, and he won't be silenced. I don't think we have to have committed the horrific crimes of the imprisoned in order to imprison ourselves with judgment. I mentioned earlier that I have struggled at times with the correlation between money and worth and dignity. As a chaplain, I don't make enough money to support myself. My husband, Scott, generously subsidizes my life and my pursuits. That particular circumstance has been far more challenging to accept than I care to admit. Not for Scott at all, mind you. It's all me. I suppose as much as I'd like to think otherwise, I'm not impervious to those cultural values that says a man's worth, his success, his dignity is tied to how much money he makes. So when I make a mistake, one that costs money to remedy, you cannot imagine the internal condemnation. Last year, within the span of a month, I got not one, not two, but three parking tickets, 56 bucks a pop, for forgetting to hang the permit placard from my rearview mirror parking in front of our own house. In my own mind, and I do not exaggerate, I do not deserve to live. I was mortified, humiliated to have to tell Scott, and it didn't matter one bit that his response would be, so you made a mistake, or three. <laughs> You're human. I was embarrassed by the amount of suffering I was causing myself. But the fact is, a core wound had been touched, the wound of inherent worthlessness. Not so different from Miguel, who used to prick himself with a pin in order to stay awake and study harder. So committing the sin of carelessness when I'm being financially supported, unforgivable. Maybe I'm a Protestant after all. But as I have judged myself, so it is that I've judged others. Geez, the hours in therapy dissecting the sins of the Father, for instance. But just as we might hold ourselves and each other hostage for committing the smallest of sins, so it is that the smallest of deeds might just open a pathway to our own redemption, as the gold coat would suggest, and offering that to others. The crazy irony is that what we do might just open a window to what was inherent all along. About five years ago, Janet died, an old friend of the family, my mom's best friend. We all gathered in Long Beach where I was raised for her memorial service. I'd grown up with her kids and I hadn't seen them in over 40 years, but I could still see traces of the children they were dance across their faces and their smiles. After the service pulled into this undertow of nostalgia, we took my mom on a driving tour of Long Beach to revisit all these landmarks from our lives, both from our lives and from her life as a teenage Midwest transplant during World War II. Many of the landmarks are long gone, but quite a few remain. Why do you think it gives us so much comfort to find the detritus of our lives exactly where we left it? 
The last spot on our tour would be the house my parents built, the house I grew up in, the house that's still the setting for so many dreams. The house we left in 1969 after my parents' divorce. My mom was a young bride and mother of 20. If you can imagine, she got to help design her dream home with my dad's best boyhood friend who had just graduated from USC Architecture School. It was a mid-century modern gem. Like so many of the landmarks, the house has now been obliterated with bad additions and remodels, but quite a few remnants remain, and I screwed up the courage to go up to the front door, now encased in this grotesque wrought iron security gate, and I knocked. I heard the inner door open, but I couldn't see through the mesh as if it were a confessional. I'm so sorry to disturb you, but my parents built this house and I grew up here and my mom's 81 years old and she's out in the car right now and she lives 200 miles away and it would mean the world to her and to us if we could just come in and look around just for a minute. Sure, he said flatly. Young kid, 21, 22, a Cambodian. From the way he talked, it didn't sound like it was his parents' house. Maybe he was a boarder or extended family. In any event, he was home alone. I gulped for air as I watched my mom walk up the steps to her own house. In an instant, I could see her as she once was, glamorous, earrings, lipstick, high heels, clicking on the flagstone, coming home from a PTA meeting. And as she is today, she gingerly made her way up to the front door with tears in her eyes, with this kind of reverence as if she's approaching an altar ready to receive Holy Communion. Once inside, it was this, as if we were floating in a zero-gravity chamber with no anchor in time or space. We made our way into my parents' bedroom, the spot where I was conceived. And my mom's first words were, Oh, God, the fights your father and I had in this room. Telling and sad, we rounded the corner into my parents' bathroom, and oh my God, the same blue toilet, the blue tile, the fixtures, the same square plexiglass cabinet poles with the beveled edges and the polished chrome centers. And then my mom cried out, oh my God, my mirror. And she began to sob hard. My dad had built a wedge of plywood and mounted it to the wall opposite the vanity. And on the slanted side of the wedge, he affixed a mirror so my mom could stand in the front of the vanity and see the back of her head. How many times I've thought about that mirror over the years, she said, and wished I had it. And he built it for me. I asked him, and he built it for me. And it's still here. And he's not. And something was healed in that moment for her and for me. In the span of a few moments, we went from recalling these horrific fights to the most tender affection and gratitude for what was likely the full limit and extent and beauty, really, of my father's love, solving a concrete problem. That's what he could do. That's what he could offer not done with any great style or attention to detail, mind you, but it was sturdy. My mom has lost so much vision to macular degeneration, and she stood there in front of that mirror trying to see the back of her head. 
And instead, she saw love and forgiveness. And I caught a glimpse of inherent worth and dignity. Some view in that mirror. Maybe what we do can be a window or a mirror into what was always inherent all along. Maybe what's required is our willingness to put on the gold coat before we gaze into that mirror and allow ourselves to feel human and all that that may mean in darkness and in light. May we all gaze into that mirror and see that reflection of others and of ourselves as we are and as we are not with kindness and with grace. So be it. <laughs>